Canyoneering is a dangerous sport and requires a permission slip from your mother. The hosts of this podcast are good-looking, but stupid, and frequently make things up. This podcast is considered fake news in 27 states. To accommodate colorblind canyoneers, listeners should only use black webbing. And now, the unqualified hosts of the Canyon Tech Podcast, Wayne and Vin. Hey, everybody. Glad to have you back. This is Wayne. Vin, say hello. Good to be back. Vin, you've been in the hospital since our last episode. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, you know, I started feeling some pain last week. I uh, had an emergency coleostostectomy. Uh, no one cares, do they? No, no one cares, Vin. Let's talk about canyoneering. So today, we're going to talk about considerations when planning a canyon trip. So obviously, if you're leading a trip, it's important. But even if you're just a member of the team, there's a number of things to think about. Um, You want to make sure that you understand what you're doing within the canyon, what the entire team is. And and, um, it's important to keep the entire team safe and, frankly, enjoy the outing. Um, so let's start by talking about the team itself. So there's the experience on a team. And I, ideally, um, you'd want to have more than just the leader that has experience. You'd want uh, two people that have experience on the team. And, and uh, what, Van, tell us why and what the roles are of the, of the folks that are a little more experienced. Yeah, so a lot of times when I'm putting together the team, I divide people into that category. People that I'm comfortable going first or last, and then people that I'd probably be more comfortable having in the middle. Uh, that first person is really important because they're going to need to go down uh, either with an auto block or with some kind of uh, third hand but they also might not. Like if you're in a class C canyon, they might be going down without any protection at all. And so it's not enough to send somebody down with a prusik and expect that they're going to be okay going first. Because one of the things that happens is when something bad happens, they have a tendency to grip the prusik, which will just cause it to fail. Yeah. And I've actually had that where I was um, uh, stupidly, I guess, sending down a relatively new person who was a friend of the family and he did exactly that so he he um, let go or lost control of his brake hand and he squeezed his prusik with all of his life and fell luckily it wasn't a very uh, long fall and so and he and he landed well so it was um, kind of hurt his ego maybe more than anything else but it was it did teach me a lesson that you can't have new folks go down first necessarily and and survive that when they panic Um, And then the other part of that is the last person. So the last person has some good responsibilities as well. So um, they have to remove the backups. So um, usually you've got a figure eight backup of some kind and you want to make sure that that gets cleared. Um, They want to make sure that last person needs to make sure that the pull would be good. So simple things like if you've got a, you know, another rope or a pull cord that the, um, the pull cord and your rappel line isn't in the same spot in the rope groove or a pinch between a rock and the wall or those types of things. Right. And then also that last person may be going down on a toggle and the toggle at that point has to be unprotected or you can't do the pull, um, and pull it out. And so that last person has to be 
aware enough so that they're not banging that toggle or having it stand on its head as you're going over the edge and it, it pushes and uh, pushes itself out. So um, that's other responsibility is that last person that you want somebody a little more experienced. And again, if you're using a toggle, like a, a fiddle or a smooth operator, that they understand that. Um, also, what is another good responsibility of that last person in terms of rescue? Yeah, you know, there's an order of hierarchy for how you're going to rescue something if something goes wrong. But in general, all of them happen from the top, right? Because if you're at the bottom, your um, your options are much more limited. You've either got to go past them or make some other strange choices. Uh, so leaving somebody up there that has the skills is definitely going to make the team safer on each and every repel. The other thing I would add too is like that person that up there is the only person that's going down that doesn't have somebody looking at what they're doing. They're doing all of that on their own, getting on the right side of the rappel, hooking up the rappel device. They're the only one that doesn't have somebody watching. Yeah, that's great. And the other uh, person that would be great to have on the team, whether they're experienced or not, is somebody who's done that exact canyon before. So just there's a wealth of knowledge online, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, and being able to um, leverage that but someone who just knows exactly what anchors to go down, how to bypass and things that are often in the beta is, uh, is invaluable. So that's, that's great to have on the team if you can get it. Uh, the other thing that we want to talk about is on the team is matching the Canyon to experience level. Um, quick story. I was doing uh, Pine Creek with a kind of a friend and, and, and some of his friends and, and colleagues and uh, I was just making chit chat because they were they were all relatively uh, new folks and uh, to canyoneering. And I asked one of them um, if she's done many canyons, and she said, "Oh, three. And it was like, you know, Yankee Doodle, Boltergeist, and Heaps. And Heaps is a huge canyon. And I was like, "How did you get into Heaps? That?" And she said, "I didn't know anything about it. I was just asked by." by my friends to go. And I said, yes, she said it took them 24 hours to do heaps. And in general, you know, the quickest, most people do that in one day might be 12 hours and it may, may take 16 or so, um, for some, some other groups and, uh, but 24 hours, they had some serious issues, uh, and they were all exhausted and they were all happy and barely made it out. Um, so, you want to make sure if you've got something as serious as heaps, you are not taking a bunch of newbies um, into that. Um, and then also, Vin, there's different types of canyons, right? So, you know, there's the average canyon. We're just going on 100, 100 plus uh, foot repels, but each of them has their own kind of distinctive challenges and personality. So tell me a little bit about things that should be considered. Yeah, there are things that are going to scare people. Um, or cause difficulties, anything with like potholes, anything with significant amount of stemming, exposure, down climbing, uh, weird starts, like all of these can add a tremendous amount of time if you have someone that is not as comfortable with them. Uh, and sometimes that's fine. Like if you have a four hour canyon, you're willing to take six or seven hours to do it, that's great. But if you have eight hours of daylight and it's an eight hour canyon, these choices that you make in your team composition are going to come at a cost. And I'm uh, amazed sometimes with people who repel very well and they understand how to get down on rope, but you get them into a stemming situation, like a high stem, 
and they freeze and they're not wanting to do that at all. And so it takes them much more time, you know, time to spot them, to set up maybe a guideline or some other safety. Um, and then I'll just call it kind of different levels of courage and endurance. So um, again, once you get to some of these big rappels or maybe a sequence of rappels where you're at uh, on a 400 foot wall, then you got to change over mid anchor. Um, that shakes some people and it takes them a little bit longer to get down. And, and sometimes you have to talk them through that. Um, another thing that we take into consideration, uh, maybe even before you do the invites for the team is, is each person even physically capable of doing that, right? So if you have a big canyon, uh, an Imlay or a telephone or something like that in, in Zion National Park, it's a three-hour approach. Maybe you have a couple thousand feet of elevation. Um, there's some people that maybe aren't physically capable of doing that or, again, doing it in the time frame that you would want in order to get through a longer canyon. Um, and then there's also a challenge. I know you're a little more barrel-chested than I am. Then, so about other challenges going through some canyons. Yeah, there's definitely some canyons that I like physically won't fit through. And so it becomes a question of like something you said earlier in the podcast, which is, you know, can you do it? Can you do it in a timely manner? And also, will you enjoy it? And so some of these canyons that are super skinny, now that either became a technical challenge or I'm stemming really high up and it just wasn't a great day. Uh, sometimes I just would rather not be on that team. Yeah, I did uh, Egypt 3, and there is some really, really thin parts there. And, uh, and I remember squeezing through one of those parts, and I took a normal breath in, and I stuck myself because my chest expanded <laughs> to the point where I couldn't move. So I actually had to breathe out and then squeeze the rest of the way through when I had uh, no breath in my lungs. That's how narrow it was. And so that's one of those where I would come back to you and say, yeah, that's not one for you, Vin, to, to ever squeeze through because um, that's a tough one. So um, give me another thought is kind of the team size, right? So we all like our friends to come and, and be kind and invite as many as we can, and it'll be great. But um, what, what's your ideal team size, Vin? So for me, the ideal team size is going to sit between four and six to seven people, right? That means that I've got enough people to carry gear. I've got a first and a second. I can do a little bit of sequencing. Uh, and I have people that can help if things get, if things turn sideways, that something goes wrong. Uh, I think for me, any more than that, anything more than the six or seven people, the time starts to add up exponentially. Agreed. And I have heard early on, that um, while you could go out in a canyon, and I have done it on a rare occasion with two people, three is always uh, considered a minimum number. And the reason that was given to me, which I actually like and agree with, is if one of the people gets hurt, you will want one person to stay with the victim and the hurt person and the other person has to go for help right and sometimes the you know it's just getting the garment out and you don't have to worry about it so much but if you're in a narrow slot canyon you may have to work your way through the rest of the canyon in order to get a signal out or uh, get a cell cell signal or something like that if you don't have a Garmin to be able to get that help. So the three is a minimum. I agree with you on the top side. Uh, again, quick uh, story that there was one time I was invited to a canyon. I'm assume, assuming it was like a group of six or seven people. I, when I showed up, we picked up some more people and then some more people. We had 17 people 
on this canyon that would have taken four hours. It took us like eight hours. And so a lot of that becomes difficult because I didn't plan for eight hours. I didn't know how many people were showing up. It wasn't, wasn't my gig. And, um, and that leads me into part of this story leads me into the next thing is there is maybe a conversation to be had, um, about any alcohol or drugs in the Canyon in general, I wouldn't suggest it, but I know people like to enjoy themselves in different ways. Uh, on the group that I had that had 17, about, mm, I'd say a third to a half of them. Uh, this was at eight or nine in the morning and had already been drinking whiskey for a couple of hours and continued to drink throughout the rest of the day. And then another group of about six of those 17 uh, were doing mushrooms right before we started the approach. So I was not super happy having to babysit a lot of folks on various drugs that day. And, uh, and then once we got through the canyon, there were some people that were just laying on rocks for, and just relaxing for an hour or two, um, which was, you know, uh, annoying because now we're all waiting at the car for them to get through the rest of the canyon. We just kind of went ahead. So it can be... Um, uh, troublesome all the way to dangerous. So if you are a party group, make sure that you understand that. And if you're wanting to not partake, uh, I would make those expectations clear. If anyone in your group is newer or you think they're, they want to bring, bring some whiskey with them. Um, and then the last thing I'd say about the team, Vin is maybe just expectations on pace overall. Yeah. Pace is kind of one of those things. It's just, you know, if you're putting together a canyon, you want people that have a similar mindset, whether they're flexible enough to switch back and forth. But some teams that you put together are going to be super efficient and tear through canyons. And other ones are going to want to frolic more, take pictures of, you know, trees and selfies and do Instagram reels. And those are, although two great ways to enjoy a canyon, not necessarily super compatible all the time. Yep. Sounds good. All right, so we'll leave the team and talk now about the beta. So again, we're planning a canyon trip. We're selecting who, who we want to have go with us. And part of that is understanding the canyon and all of the details relative to the canyon. So the first one that we want to talk about is just the number of wraps and the map and the maximum uh, wrap length, your longest wrap. So Vin, talk to me a little bit about um, why that matters to the group. Yeah, the first reason you need to know for number of wraps and max wrap is how you're going to organize how many ropes that you're going to bring, right? So you, at bare minimum, you need a rope long enough to uh, do the max wrap, but all of these things are going to start determining how the canyon is going to play out. So the more wraps you have and the longer the wraps, uh, the more time it's going to add, especially when you factor in how many people are going. Uh, so de depending on how many people you bring, you're going to start to reorganize your ropes and your pulls based on those two numbers. Yeah. So I think we've talked in a previous episode, it's really a minimum is two, but they advise three times the length of the longest rappel. So often you and I and our group will do two times, but then we've got um, a pull cord and or a, um, a, a toggle, a fiddlestick in the mix in order to be able to not commit both of our longest ropes. And then if there's a lot of rappels and especially a lot of shorter rappels, we'll bring additional pulls, maybe a shorter pull cord or even a long pull cord. We'll bring uh, uh, like another hundred or a couple of hundred foot ropes. So that way we can keep sequencing and just push ropes forward as much as possible. And um, you know, whatever the rappel is, we don't over plan each one. Um, whatever the rappel is, we just look and, and then figure it out at that particular point. Um, I think the other 
items to keep in mind is that there is that kind of per person per wrap overhead. So going back to your team, right? If there is a lot of repels, if you have 20 some repels and you have 10 people, it is going to take you a long time because even if you're rigging it um, with a stone knot or in a jest or a joker configuration where you can send people down both sides, just getting people on the rope down and off the rope and then pulling each rope from that many repels is going to take a very long time. So understanding how many wraps there are is going to help in that equation. Um, and then last thing I'd say is really about who, you know, planning in advance, who will carry the ropes. So a lot of times we'll show up and, um, you know, we'll, we'll have the ropes, um, and, and offer people will offer to carry them, but sometimes, especially newer folks, they don't have the canyoneering equipment. So they show up with a small backpack cause they put in, you know, their water bottle and their harness. And that was pretty much it. And so making sure that they're, uh, planning in advance and saying, Hey, can you carry this 200 foot of rope? Make sure you're bringing up a big enough pack in order to fit it. Um, that's very helpful. I would say in order to plan, um, plan for what you're going to need for that day, for the poles, for the ropes, et cetera. Okay. There's another uh, um, thought, which is making sure that you've got the wrap lengths and other interesting data points from that Canyon beta, right? So there's the location of anchors, there's the types of anchors, um, because for example, some may be bypassed. And so, and especially if it's in the wintertime and there's a pothole full of water and that's the only place you're going to get wet, you might want to know how you can bypass, right? So it helps to know exactly which wrap can be bypassed and, and how you do that. Um, and other wraps, Vin may have multiple anchors. So tell us a little bit about um, understanding what's coming up. Yeah, so as canyoneering has changed over time, we've kind of learned that uh, different ways of or different places to anchor can have different effects on where you're going to wind up and small changes can have huge effects. So you could have a bolted station over here, but we figured out five years ago that, oh, going off this tree here is significantly better. Or you might run into a situation where you run into a bolt here, but actually it was to rig a traverse line to get out to this exposed anchor. And not knowing that uh, a lot of people rig off of the traverse line and go all the way down, but that caused issues because of poles or, or, or whatever. Yeah, and the other uh, maybe tip that I've seen folks do is to take that beta, take the wrap lengths, put it in a little uh, printed out, and then just tape it uh, with some clear tape to either a helmet, top of a helmet, or a bag, so that way it's easy to follow. Other people will pull out a piece of paper or pull out their phone, um, you know. But if there is, if you are in a new canyon, no one knows that canyon. Um, it is helpful to make sure that you're going in the right place. And again, if it's bypassing it or if you can't see the bottom, knowing what that the length of the of the wrap is can be helpful to how you're setting up. So. Okay, so let's talk about also the beta on the types of anchors, right? So not just where they are and how big the repels are, um, but for example, let's say we're in Death Valley and they're all Cairns. So it's good to know what might be some of the considerations that we take into account for our planning, Vin, with Cairns. Yeah, you know, all of these things affect how you're managing your time. Like I walk up to a bolt station. In general, I know it's pretty good, but I'm going to twist it a little bit. But that took me four seconds. When I walk up to a kiln, it's a little bit different. Like there's some inspection involved, depending on what type of kiln it is. And it may require some rebuilding. And that rebuilding could add a significant amount of time. In addition, like if you have people that haven't gone off of rocks or natural anchors, 
there's a certain amount of hand-holding that's involved, right? Like you're talking about the forces applied and why it's super safe, but you're going to add a few minutes to it. Yeah, the um, you know any of the questionable anchors, you and I have learned over time what a good Karen looks like, and we can tell pretty quickly what's going to move or not move potentially. Um, but, uh, you know, newer folks will be nervous. And so now you're going to meet anchor back up all of those. Um, you may have to explain to them how to do a soft start, which they're not good at. So that takes some more time again, as you're planning the Canyon, the length of the Canyon, can you get out before dark, those kinds of things. Um, that's one of the considerations when you don't have just, you know, two bolted anchors where you can throw the rope through and go. Um, and then another consideration uh, is if there's in the beta, it talks about um, you're going off of trees. There may be a difficult pull in various places. Um, there's already deep rope grooves. So that may necessitate, or at least um, it'd be advisable to use a toggle like a fiddle or a smooth operator, because now you're not pulling, um, you know, all that rope and making the groves, the, the rope grooves even worse, um, or you're making sure that you're getting your, your rope back. So that can that can be a part of the consideration. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of when you get, especially into the pothole ones, there may not be anchors on some of these potholes, right? Sometimes you jump into the water, you slide down, um, but you may need to meet anchor some of those, right? So um, what does that mean, Vin, in terms of how we plan out? Uh, just that when you have the meat anchor, you're sending down the entirety of your team except for the last person, uh, meaning that you have to have a plan to get that last person down, whether you're uh, assisting them down um, or some kind of system to you know, get everyone down safely. Okay. And then the last thing that I've seen is there's places that may not have any material at all. So it'll advise you to have a sand trap or other kinds of specialty anchors like that to take into consideration. So why don't we just take a, a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's podcast is sponsored by Zinda Carabiners, X-I-N-D-A. Zinda is China's leading climbing equipment brand. All their carabiners are infused with love and random materials by dedicated workers locked in factories under COVID quarantine. Does each Zinda Carabiner have the strength in kilonewtons stamped on the side? Maybe, but half the fun in a canyon is the danger of failed equipment to save $3. Zinda carabiners are sold at AliExpress.com, TJ Maxx, and other questionable retailers that carry counterfeit goods direct from China. The next time you need carabiners, remember Zinda. Starts with an X and ends with an ah. What do you think of that, Vin? That sounds great. I want one of those. Ah, all that emotion, Vin. It's always good to hear from our about our sponsors. Uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about, again, we're in the beta looking at the canyon and doing some planning, right? So now, is there any water or pothole escapes that we have to worry about? So if we do have water and potholes to worry about, uh, what are some of the, our considerations for, for packing, Ben? It's, yeah, it's what are you bringing, right? And, and the cost of this is 
whatever you're choosing to bring is something that you have to carry, which costs you energy, which costs you time. And so, you know me, like I, I run super hot. So I'm always going to err on the side of bringing less warmth, which is a good choice for me. But sometimes I have to. And having that in the beta makes it the right choice. And it's the same thing with like, especially with like pot shots and hooks to get out of potholes. Like that's kind of in that same category of you may or may not need it, but making the decision to have it comes down to a risk versus reward uh, scenario. Yeah. And so, you know, you've got uh, the wetsuits or dry suits, and we've talked about that before in terms of the equipment. Um, you know, even summer in Southern Utah with some of the canyons deep inside of Zion, the water never gets warm, right? So you're almost always going to have a wetsuit um, or maybe in rare occasion, a dry suit to go through those. Um, and then also when you're talking about that etrie and a hook, right? Etrie is like a ladder um, that you put onto the hook and then you hook uh, hopefully the rock somewhere. It's um, making sure that one, you have it because it's specialty equipment. And two, um, I've been in potholes before, one in, one in Imlay where all of the holes were blown out. The water was um, high enough that we couldn't stand, but low enough that we had a significant pothole to get out of. And it took a while to, um, to figure that out. And we had a hammer and a way to make a little, um, and I've used a punch before, uh, just to, um, chip away at the rock and make a new hole. But there's, you know, there was other issues that every time we started to pick up the hammer, we would float away. And so it took us a little bit to figure out how to get out of that pothole. Um, so you want to make sure you've got some good experience with those, with that equipment, um, how to get out of, you know, pothole escape is a whole separate set of training. Um, so maybe going back to the team and who you've chosen to come with you. Um, and then there, and then that special equipment to bring it with you to get out of those potholes. Cause, uh, you are stuck if you cannot get out. Um, the other thing to look at is there always be an estimation as to the number of hours. So normally there'll be a range, right? So it'll say this canyon will take uh, five to seven hours, which is a pretty big range. Over time, your team, if you're going with the same set of people, more or less, you'll kind of understand whether you're at the low end or the high end of that. Um, and then you're going to have to adjust that for the size of the group. So obviously if you've got our ideal of maybe five people um, and they're relatively skilled and you know there's eight to 10 wraps. Um, and it's not complex, it'd probably take you and you can get through on that low end of that range. If you have 12 people and a bunch of them are newbies and you're talking about 20 wraps in a, in a longer canyon and you've got pothole escapes and you may have to rebuild some care and anchors, you're going to be not only at the high end, you're probably going to go past that. Um, so as you are doing that planning um, and also um, then what does it not take into account? That's if everything goes well, but what happens if it doesn't? Yeah, like there's all sorts of things that can happen, but some of them we mentioned, whether you stick a rope, uh, whether, you know, I left a rope up top and I had to send you back up to get it. It's happened. Right? Or even if I've lost my glove and I really like that one and I sent you to get it. It's happened. Yeah. Rebuilding anchors, replacing webbing uh, because we're not trusting it. We took a little bit of extra time having lunch. Uh, somebody wandered off to take a picture of a flower or we're just cooling off in a pool because the, the day was extra hotter. All of this, all of this adds time. Yeah. And the time is, may not make any difference if it's, you know, summertime and you have a lot of daylight 
or I know people that go out and they don't worry about when the sun goes down because they just pull out their headlamps and they continue on. But if you're in the wintertime in, say, southern Utah, it is beautiful out when it's 50 degrees and sunny. But as soon as that sun goes down, it gets awfully cold. And if you get any wind or if you're in water or any of those kinds of things, um, you are not going to be happy, right? And the and the sun goes down kind of late afternoon, or early evening, um, as opposed to in the summer when you've got um, literally all day. So it makes, it makes a difference when you're trying to plan for those kinds of things. And also, similarly, it's planning just for the food and maybe in the summertime the water, right? So when you are, if you have a huge group, um, if you know it's going to take a long period of time, and like in some of my examples, a four-hour canyon turned into a seven or eight-hour canyon, I didn't even have enough water. I wasn't planning for that at all. Um, but also, if it is longer, you may need to figure out, is there a source to filter water? Um, if there's a lot of potholes, um, I've filtered stinky pothole water before, and with a good filter, it works out nicely. Um, so, so that all takes into account, you know, what you're going to do in terms of how long you're going to be in the Canyon, how much water you're going to need. Um, and then one other consideration that we've had is, is it better to camp overnight? So a lot of people will do say heaps um, that we were talking about before, um, in 12 to 16 hours in one long day. So they get there super, super early in the morning, um, and go hiking and then, uh, hopefully get out before nightfall or sometimes with some headlamps. Um, but I've done heaps as an overnight before. So it's a seven hour approach and seven hours through the Canyon, very enjoyable and easily done. And we don't have to worry about running out of daylight. We have plenty of time. Um, and so that's, that's helpful as well. Okay. So another, um, item that we take into consideration is the drive. So a lot of canyons are a loop. You drive there, you do the canyon, you come right back to your car. Um, but a number of them also, you're going to have a shuttle required. So that can obviously add a lot of time at the beginning or at the end. So at least some of you from a planning perspective, you need at least two um, in order to be able to do that. And if you're carpooling, then maybe even the rest of the group is going to sit around and wait and um, have a snack while, while that um, original drop-off car is, is fetched. Um, there's other ways to get your car back, Vin, uh, that I may not suggest and could cost a little money, but tell us about those ideas. Yeah, a couple of times uh, we've hitchhiked. Uh, which is a relatively good option. But hitchhiking actually has a couple of different options, right? So you could either hitch, you know, go to the drop-off point and hitchhike the entire team to the start, or sometimes it's actually a good option to bring the car, drop everyone off, and then bring one or two people back. And that way you're only trying to hitchhike one or two people. Um, or, you know, there, there are a lot of times in Zion, you can actually hire guide companies just to do that drop-off, and then you hike back to your car. Yep. That's great. And then uh, the road conditions make a difference, right? So this also generally is in the beta. Um, so there's places that just say you, you need a high clearance vehicle. Some will say four wheel drive is a must. Um, you also have to consider the recent weather, right? So it's been rainy and, and you're on these um, uh, kind of dirt roads off in the middle of the backcountry. Um, you might have to worry about some mud, some deep sand, uh, could be even snow if you're at higher elevations. Um, and then there's other things to take into consideration, like uh, there's something called 50 mile road around here um, that, as the name implies, it is way out in the backcountry in a very long road. Um, and I think the only thing worse on that road when it hasn't been recently graded is when it has been recently graded and there's a bunch of sharp rocks that are exposed that will give you 
uh, flats. So and if you're not prepared for for that, that can be a, a struggle as well. So that drive, especially when you're in more remote areas, is not just a, yeah, it's no problem. You're going to need uh, the vehicles that are capable um, for wherever you're going and what the current conditions are. And the more you can find online where people have reported the current conditions, the better. Um, let's talk also about the approach and sometimes the exit, which can be long as well, right? Um, so you're reading the, reading the beta, understanding that it may be uh, a long approach. So one of the items is maybe it's better to plan the start time. I talked about heaps um, where you're doing the hike in the dark as opposed to you know going uh, in the daytime and then rappelling in the dark. Um, so we've done a couple of canyons in the dark, Vin. It's, it's a different experience. Um, and so it's making sure that you, uh, I'd, I'd much rather do the approach in the dark, frankly, or an exit in the dark than rappel in the dark. Uh, it just makes it a lot tougher. You don't, you can't see the bottom. You don't know your rope lengths. Um, you can't see the people when they're on rappel um, uh, and those types of things. So it becomes a little more difficult. Um, also on the approach or the exit, um, we talked a little bit about the elevation and the, and how long it is, right? So is your team able, are they fit enough to be able to do that? Um, and are they even used to hiking at elevation? So I've been surprised when I've had visitors and I've taken them out even to easier canyons. We're only at, you know, three to 4,000 feet, maybe you go up another thousand in the area and they are completely out of breath um, because just that little bit of elevation when they're used to more of a sea level is a very big change for them if they're otherwise even fit. Um, so that becomes uh, an issue as well. Um, talk a little bit about the elements, Vin, sun and heat in the summer. Yeah, especially in southern Utah, sun and heat is going to be an issue. Um, it's extremely draining in certain in certain temperatures, and you're also consuming a ton of water. You're burning through a lot of energy. Um, and so for those issues, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of changing when you're going to do things, whether you're going to go earlier to avoid the heat and then you're going to be in the Canyon, or you could start a little bit later in the day. Uh, but then you could be coming out with a cold exit things to consider. Yep. It requires a plan. And then also a minor thing, but someone who knows, um, could tell you whether it's a bushy approach, right? So if it's hot, you want to wear shorts, that's great. Except if you're going through a lot of sagebrush and scrub, um, a lot of down climbing, et cetera, you might want pants and long sleeves. Um, and then on rare occasion, I've seen canyons or been warmed at canyons that have a lot of poison ivy um, that you cannot avoid. So even to the point where you want to bring extra clothes to then uh, put on and take back off and, you know, painters overalls or those kinds of uh, ideas that I've heard before uh, folks doing to avoid the poison ivy, or I should say, if you can't avoid it, to avoid getting it on you at least. Um, let's talk about the other very important uh, item is a GPS track. You got to know where you're going. Again, if you go with someone who knows the route, knows the canyon well, um, maybe it's not such a big deal. But, um, you know, how do folks generally get these tracks, Ben? Yeah, there's a number of ways to get tracks. Uh, in general, though, I would say the most popular ways are you're downloading it from a trusted site or you're getting it from a friend. 
Yeah. So the sites like Road Trip Ryan, Blue Gnome, uh, Wiki Rope are big ones. Um, and then putting it onto your device, generally your phone, you're going to have something like Gaia Backcountry Navigator, which is the one I use. Um, but the key is knowing how to use it. It takes you a little bit, right? Um, so even just following it, I, it took me way too long, I have to admit, because um, I just kind of learned it as I went, that if I uh, point my phone in the direction of the track, then I know exactly which way I need to be going so that I'm not walking the wrong direction or just kind of wandering aimlessly if I'm off track a little bit. It's a lot easier to use. Um, you can also, if a friend is taking you through the canyon or on their approach, you can then use those same devices to record the track so that you have it for next time. And maybe a quick aside on that, Vin, there are a lot of um, unpublished canyons in the area and there are reasons that they're unpublished and often we'd like to keep them unpublished. So tell us a little bit of your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think it kind of comes down to kind of a, a more local canyon ethic issue which is how many of the canyons are published and out there in the public domain and how many were discovered and still being used by locals in a way that while not trying to be cliquish still protects a natural resources a natural resource that may be kind of limited yeah and i think you know some may be in the park or end up in various you know state state or uh, federal parks. And so there's some degree of um, not sure whether the park knows about them or doesn't. And I'm assuming that they know, but as long as they don't have to do a lot of rescues there and they don't have people guiding and, and too many folks, you know, traipsing through and kind of ruining um, any part of the experience for everybody else that's in the park. I think it may be a, you know, don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. Um, but also that's where you may not want to publish the track. So generally when there's some that we know that are unpublished and we bring new people out, we say, please don't publish this because we don't want the park or whoever to come out and pull these bolts and, um, and to ruin it for everybody. Right. So it's kind of uh, let's keep it a secret amongst, as you said, the locals and those that are in the know. Um, another thing to understand when you download uh, a GPX or KML file is that some routes are tracked and some are drawn. So the ones that are um, very well tracked tend to have nice curves to them and they're, you know, what, every minute or 30 seconds, they're putting a new, new little GPS point on that track when it was originally recorded. Other ones that are drawn, you'll see more jagged lines, straight lines. Um, so what's happened is maybe every couple of minutes, um, at a lower frequency, there are key points that were tracked and then the GPS or the whatever it was recorded on actually just drew a straight line. And the reason why it's important to recognize the difference between those two is that you won't be able to follow that straight line directly, right? Um, because it just has a data point from when you made one turn to when you make the next turn. And so it could be, it could look like you should be walking in a gully when you should be walking on the uh, on a finger just above that goalie, right? Um, so some of that you have to decide on your own and you're not going to follow that track exactly if it's drawn versus when it's tracked. Um, and the other thing that um, I've looked at before when I've downloaded tracks from some of the sites that I mentioned like Wikirope is it depends on who put it out there. So I've had you know, very detailed, long labels that when you're trying to look at a canyon, it is so messy. You just see uh, letters across everything and it becomes um, difficult. And then other components to a, a good track is if it says where a car shuttle parking are, those kinds of things, that can be very helpful to, to the people that are um, navigating with it. Um, and then another 
piece of advice, Vin, on what to do with my my GPX when I get it? Yeah, I would just always make sure that you have it on multiple devices. Something's going to go wrong. It's always nice to have a backup. Yeah, so battery's dead or somebody can't quite figure out their software or I had a, a nice set of tracks downloaded on Road Trip Ryan and I'm still confused. I think, I think Road Trip Ryan updated itself um, when I went into town and got some Wi-Fi and then somehow it corrupted the database and I didn't realize it till the next day. So luckily someone else had... Um, had a GPX track and I didn't have to worry about mine. Um, so another item to consider is whether you need a permit, right? So uh, tell me a little bit about considerations on getting that permit. Yeah, especially when you're in local or state national parks, a lot of those are are permitted. And understanding that permit system is it's kind of a it's 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 the right thing to do to participate in the community uh, at the national park level. A lot of them have limits, right? So you could be at a six person limit or a twelve person limit. Um, the hours that it's valid for, uh, how many time or what time of day you have to pick it up? Do you have to be there the day before to pick it up so that they can talk to you about the you know risks and danger and the conditions that you're about to go into, um, or could you just like print print it online uh, as we do with some of our state parks here? Yeah. So it takes some planning. And then also like in Zion National Park, um, you know, they require the leave no trace. So carrying out, um, you know, with a wag bag, some of your personal waste, those kinds of things you have to take into consideration as well. So making sure you understand the requirements of that permit and any of the dangers that they describe within that makes a difference. Um, so let's, as we now have a great plan for our canyon, um, there's a couple of things leading up to it. And one is the weather. So we want to check the local weather. Obviously, if it's in the summertime, you're worried about heat. Um, in the wintertime, you're worried about cold or cold if you're going to be in the water. Um, but the big thing around here, especially in southern Utah, is the flash flood risk. Vin, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, flash flooding in southern Utah and any of this desert landscape is a little bit interesting um, because it doesn't necessarily require a ton of water, right? Because these slot canyons were carved by massive amounts of water in floodplains being funneled into a small channel, which is what created this beautiful canyon that we're about to go through. Um, and so when you are looking at the forecast, another thing to remember is that you could see 10 or 20 percent. But like what Zion will always teach you is like, hey, that doesn't mean that there's a 10%, 20% chance of rain. That means that 10 or 20% of the forecasted area is going to get rain. And if that 20% that gets rain is in the floodplain above your canyon, that's a pretty big problem. Yeah, and it's scary because it may be blue skies or just a few clouds right above you in that canyon, but much further up in the watershed is where that uh, 20% of rain is headed your way after it falls and gets funneled in. So that's the real risk. And we often, our group will look at, and if it's anything over 10%, we start to get concerned. Um, and anything over 20%, we absolutely do not go. So everybody has their own risk tolerance. But the other thing that um, we have done, which is a great idea, is those Garmin's will actually allow you to do weather. You can do a, a basic weather forecast just for the cost of one of your messages. Um, but for a dollar, um, which I would suggest is a very cheap cost for making sure you get a localized up-to-date weather forecast. And you can do that from your from your Garmin's um, and probably some other, other backcountry devices as well. I just have the um, the inReach. So that's the one that I use. So we have done that before. Again, heaps where we did overnight, we check the weather right before we go into the canyon to know whether it still looks like it's going to be safe. So always a good idea to check the weather. 
Um, the last thing I think we'll talk about today is you're going in a canyon and you're going to let your significant other know, significant other or others know um, how long you think you're going to be gone. But obviously, you have to put in some kind of buffer for problems or those kinds of things. So you may leave them with some instructions as to when to call uh, 911 or the park or someone where they're concerned about the fact that you haven't made it out yet. So Vin, do you have any advice and what you tell your spouse? Yeah. So, you know, I think you know that you're the reason that I have a Garmin for for specifically this issue. I was in a canyon and it was way too long. I knew it was getting way too long, but I had no way to reach you. And all I needed was one sentence. Hey, we're doing fine. We're just a little bit delayed. Uh, But but besides that, like if I'm going to get into a situation where I need to be rescued, I'd probably just rather press my SOS button right? Like my spouse making the call doesn't add a ton of value for, for me based on the communication that I have. Uh, so when I'm talking to my spouse, I, I would, in general, I would say, hey, like I may be late, um, but if you give me an extra day is kind of the right number for me. Um, but one thing that I would also add is in addition to the spouse, I've also kind of personally gotten into this situation where I'm out of a canyon and there's like a ranger waiting for me. Not because I did anything wrong. It's just it was the wrong time of day to be exiting the canyon. And so one thing that I've started doing is I just write the in-reach website address uh, and leave it on my dashboard. That way, rangers have an option to contact me if they're concerned about where I am given the time of day that it is. Yeah, it's a great, a great tip. And I, I have the same where at some point, um, originally my wife would want to know what canyon I was doing exactly when I expected to be done, et cetera. And at some point, again, once I had the Garmin and I realized I, I told her straight up, you are not going to be the one to rescue me. So it's not going to make any difference, right? It's going to be me pressing the Garmin um, or, you know, the search and rescue folks from the from the park or the county coming in to find us. So as you said, if it's, you know, a, an overnight and give me into the next day to get back out, if something's gone wrong and we decided to overnight, you got to give me that much time. But if we're really in trouble, um, I'll probably get you a message via the Garmin or, you know, uh, push that SOS button. Okay. Then anything else that you can think of relative to planning a great Canyon trip and enjoying it as we go through? Yeah. The only thing that I would add is that some of this, like when you take on the responsibility of planning a Canyon and you're kind of going into that like Canyon leadership role, I guarantee you the number one question we get as people who organize Canyons is how long it's going to take, Mm. right? So all of this information is what we're filtering through to make that estimate. Um, And in a way, if nothing goes wrong, you're being a little bit judged on it, right? Like if people are dedicating five hours because that's what they told them and it turns into an eight hour, but nothing went wrong. Like these are responsibilities that you're taking on when you're starting to plan canyons. Yeah. And that's also the reason um, I've had folks lead canyons when I was newer to the canyoneering community and the sport. And I realized like I just showed up thinking they knew the route and we were stumbling to try to figure out the route and I didn't have anything downloaded. Um, I didn't have the app for it. And, you know, other times people don't quite know the beta as well as I thought. So that's what happened over time as I just realized just for your own personal safety, it is good to do some of the planning things that we talked about, even if you're not the lead. And maybe similarly, 
if the lead gets hurt along the way, you may still have to make it out of the canyon or you may have to lead, you know, at least part of the team out of the canyon as well. And so you're going to have to understand that canyon at least enough to get yourself out. Um, so that can be an important point as well. Okay. Well, uh, we're going to close it up today. And uh, thanks everybody for listening and we'll talk to you next time.